0: it's another episode of the Lost in Science Summer Series for 2020. Once again, my co-presenters Stu and Claire are still on a break, so I'm going to be playing one of their story highlights of 2019, in which both of them investigate a mystery from Western Australia. The water rat, Rakali, often also known as the native otter, is implicated in a series of grisly murders of cane toads. So it actually turns out alright, and a surprisingly good thing for Australian ecology. But first, I have another special summer treat for you. In an attempt to find new content for you, I'll be reading an essay that I wrote a few years ago for the magazine Materiality. It's called Shadows on the Wall of Reality, and it's all about the holographic principle of fundamental physics, which suggests that our solid universe is an illusion. So prepare to have your reality shattered, and on with the show! Everything you know is wrong. Everything you see is an illusion. Nothing is real. Now you expect to hear unsettling messages like those from cult leaders and TV magicians, but reassuringly, they usually turn out to be some sort of trick. All is good. Reality is real. At least it feels real because that's how you tell isn't it you can't trust the evidence of your eyes but if you can touch it if it's solid if it has depth and texture then you're pretty sure it's real like the cool smooth roundness of an apple the velvety soft teardrop of a ripe fig the vicious spiky end of a pineapple and the bumpy also kind of a spiky other bit of a pineapple in other words fruit is real Magic tricks and cult manifestos are not. But the trouble is, the more scientists learn about the universe, the more they're finding out that this solid feeling is just an illusion too. Consider the atom. Just over a hundred years ago, New Zealander Ernest Rutherford figured out an atom consists of electrons whirling about a nucleus. But although the nucleus is the heaviest bit, it's only about one hundred thousandth the size of the whole atom. Most of the atom... And so most of everything, including you, is empty space. What stops you falling through your chair as you hear this fact is that those orbiting electrons all have a negative electric charge and negative charges repel each other. So the electrons in your bum are repelled by the electrons in your chair and that's all that's holding you up. But, as if the ground we walk on wasn't shaky or non-existent enough, now some physicists want to take away even the empty space. The three dimensions we see, that's up and down left and right forwards and backwards may themselves be an illusion and reality may only actually have two dimensions the first person to suggest this was dutch physicist gerardus tohft in 1993 a clever chap tohft later shared the nobel prize for some work he did in the 1970s on the quantum behavior of fundamental particles However, in the era of grunge, i.e. the 90s, he was more interested in what would happen if the entire universe was swallowed by a black hole. Now, before you get too concerned, be aware that this is merely a thought experiment. In German, these are called Gedanken experiments, which possibly translates as, thank you for not actually doing the experiment, you saved us a lot of money. In the case of dropping the entire universe into a black hole, I believe we can all be thankful. Now, the reason he'd want to not actually do this but think about it is because black holes are great for testing your theoretical ideas. Even though they're very hard to see, they're rather black after all, as is much of space, we have learned a lot over the years by pondering what effects their extreme gravity may cause. Now, one thing we're pretty sure of is that anything that falls into a black hole is permanently cut off from everything outside. But this concept bothered de Hooft because it would mean that any information dropped into a black hole would be lost forever, and he's not the kind of person who tolerates that sort of thing, nor is the universe typically under normal operating conditions. So instead, de Hooft figured out a loophole where the information doesn't actually disappear, but is recorded in some way on the black hole surface. Not in a readable form, mind you more like a damaged hard disk from which the computer guy says you can never get your files back, even though you know they're still in there. But the key point is that all the information embodied in whatever falls in, which could be the entire universe if you want to push this to its ultimate conclusion, all that information can be recorded on the two-dimensional surface of the black hole. This means you don't need three dimensions to describe everything. You can get by perfectly well with only two this is called the holographic principle, named after the holograms, which are also two-dimensional objects that produce a three-dimensional image. Now, a hologram works a bit like a special window that records all the light coming through from another room. When you remove this window and shine another light onto it, it exactly reconstructs the light that it had recorded in the first place, as if the room was still there. You can even look at different angles to see around objects. But again, the surface of the window has only two dimensions, yet somehow it's recording all the three dimensions of the room. Now, it sounds a bit like a parlour trick, especially if the room that you recorded happened to be a parlour. But when you apply the concept of the whole universe, it challenges the whole notion of reality. Is our three-dimensional world really real, or is it itself just a holographic illusion? This is the point where it starts to sound like one of those meaningless arguments that do your head in when you're a kid, but when you're older, you'd rather just go to bed. But it actually has practical consequences. These consequences were worked out in 1997 by an Argentinian physicist, Juan Maldacena, who's one of the most brilliant scientists you've never heard of. Mulder Sainer's father was an elevator engineer in Buenos Aires, and one says that that's what got him interested in finding out how things work, reading books on electricity and radio and television, etc. But he long ago left such everyday concerns behind for the quest to find the fabled theory of everything. The main sticking point for a theory of everything is finding a way to combine gravity and quantum mechanics. Gravity is described by Einstein's general theory of relativity, and it governs how stars and galaxies move, whereas quantum mechanics, on the other hand, describes the nature of atoms, nuclei, and their constituents. And one of the problems is that general relativity relies on space being smooth and well-organized, whereas quantum mechanics is inherently messy and random. They're the Felix Unger and Oscar Madison of scientific theories. mulder found that instead of forcing this odd couple to live together hilariously in an apartment, he could keep them in separate rooms and use the holographic principle to switch between them. So by projecting everything onto a surface right at the very edge of the universe, Mulder was able to establish what he called a duality with an equivalent two-dimensional world in which gravity didn't exist. He could do his quantum calculations in this flat world with ease and then bring gravity back by recreating the three-dimensional hologram with his calculations still valid. Now, despite the casual shattering of existence that this implied, the scientific world was rather impressed. Physicists danced in the streets well, not literally in the streets, it was just on the campus of the University of California in Santa Barbara, but they literally danced to the tune of the Macarena, only with the words changed to Maldesena. Of course, there are some caveats. The universe Maldesena used wasn't exactly our universe. For a start, his actually had an outer edge on which to project, and as far as we know, ours goes on forever. Also, his universe had negative curvature, which is... Kind of hard to explain, except to say that it sort of looks like curly lettuce, whereas our universe is flat, um, which I think they call that butter lettuce. Still, the basic concept seems to work, and it may just be a matter of finding a suitably large surface we can use to make a hologram of our universe. For the rest of us, though, who aren't trying to make quantum meet gravity, the bigger question is, is any of this true? Wouldn't we know if we were living inside a hologram? Maldusena would say no. After all, in his model, the universe and its projection are equivalent. That's what duality means. Gravity may not actually exist in the two-dimensional version, so you can't say it's fundamentally, deeply, really, truly real. However, you will still get bruised when you trip over, because when you're in a movie, you can't see the screen. To put it another way, think of Plato's Cave. The ancient Greek philosopher's famous allegory involves prisoners chained in an underground dungeon with all they can see being shadows cast by firelight on the wall of their cave. One day, one of the prisoners is temporarily released to visit the surface where he encounters a world of solid objects lit by bright sunlight. But when he returns to the cave, his fellow prisoners dismiss his tales as fantasy. To them, the shadows are the only reality. This is usually taken to mean that somewhere there is a world that is more real and more solid than our own, with brighter colours and more authentic experiences. But perhaps we've got it around the wrong way. Perhaps the prisoner's view is just as valid. Maybe the shadows are real after all. Still, if it feels real to you, does it really matter?
1: I'm theoretical physicist Sean Carroll, and you're listening to Lost in Science, which is spreading scientific knowledge across multiple branches of the wave function of the universe. Now, don't be alarmed. Don't be scared. This story does sound pretty gruesome. (gasps) Up front. Okay. I just want to put a warning out there for everyone listening. Okay, this
2: is a disclaimer.
1: Hang in there. But if you are a bit squeamish, maybe uh, just, just take a little break, go and make a cup of tea or something like okay.
2: that. Okay. Are we talking human anatomy squeamish?
1: Well, possibly, but we're talking anatomy Ooh. squeamish. Okay,
2: anatomy squeamish. Okay. Okay,
1: so it's a mystery story here. Oh! <gasps>
2: I love a mystery story.
1: Love, I love a good mystery too. Okay. So investigators in remote Western Australia were faced with a big mystery.
2: Oh. They
1: kept finding dead bodies in bushland.
2: <gasps> oh, oh, this sounds awful.
1: Yeah. With the same apparent cause of death oh. and no witnesses.
2: Right.
1: The bodies also had some of their internal organs removed. Oh. Using the same method every time. And some of them looked like their legs had actually been skinned <gasps> and eaten.
2: Is this, is this like Jack the Ripper?
1: It's sort of pretty gruesome. It sounds like some sort of gruesome killing spree, doesn't it? It,
2: it definitely does.
1: Okay. I don't so know how this
2: is your science story. I'm just going to pull back for us. a
1: second. So the investigators were ecologists. Okay. And the bodies that they were looking at were bodies of cane toads. Ah. In the Kimberley. <laughs> Still, that's pretty full on. They just suddenly started finding these cane toads all over the place. What? Yeah. And they'd been gutted and skinned and partly eaten. Oh,
2: partly eaten. Partly eaten. But who? Was the culprit. Well, that, that's, that is the That's question. the mystery.
1: Um, they didn't really know what was going on. So, cane toads, we all know cane toads are a massive problem in Australia.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, ever since the mid 1930s when they were released um, in Queensland, they've been getting around Australia.
1: And, you know, um, famously, deliberately re- released in Queensland.
2: Famously, deliberately released. To solve in a problem
1: which was later solved by some other means. Um, But, yeah, so they were released in Queensland, arrived in the Kimberley, which is all the way over the other side of the country. It's quite far, really, isn't it? Very long way. Um, Only about eight years ago in the Kimberley, they got cane toads. They migrated across from Queensland through the Northern Territory over the sort of latter half of the 20th century.
2: And I think they're actually getting bigger as they move across the country as well, right?
1: Soon they're just going to all be hypno <laughs> They're just going to be these giant toads.
2: They will all soon be <laughs> hypno Um
1: But, okay, so the, the issue with cane toads is not just that they're gross-looking to some people. They produce...
2: It's, they are Australia's number one hated invasive species. Well, yeah. Even though biologically, ecologically speaking, they don't do as much damage as something like the rabbit.
1: Yeah well you now know they're i mean they they're mostly due to displacement but the other the other thing that they do is produce toxic chemicals in their actual inside their body basically in their gallbladder mainly um, which means most animals can't eat them without getting sick or some of them even die when they Try and eat a cane toad because there's just all this all this toxin produced inside the cane toad. So the toad numbers continue to increase while the native animals decrease as a result, as well as from you know competition. They're out competing other food sources, right? Right. And so they would the, be
2: out competing other frogs that yeah. are um, that are that might be in the same ponds as them, but and they're also, also taking down some mammals and birds. Yeah, the and they're reptiles. also
1: eating tadpoles of other frogs and stuff like that oh, as well. Yeah. So they're, they're really cool. full on when they're out there.
2: They're also cannibals.
1: Yeah. They'll eat each anyway. other if there's nothing else to eat. <laughs> um, so it is, they are a big problem. So when a team of ecologists came across reports of dead cane toads in the Kimberley, they were interested in what was killing them and, uh, you know, how why they were doing it in this, in this very um, – skillful way to I mean, avoid that, the toxic parts of the animal.
2: It sounds like something out of Jack the Ripper, something out of London in like, you know, the yeah, late it sounds 19th like, century.
1: It sounds like they need, you know, well, they, so they looked around uh, for more cane toed bodies and they found them. They actually found sort of half decaying ones in ponds and stuff just lying all over the place. All right.
2: and, and they weren't that far from a water source?
1: No, they're always around a water source. So, you know, the toads can travel across country. Obviously, there's lots Obviously. of areas <laughs> of Australia that don't have much water. But they do tend to spend most of their time and they, and they spawn in the water and stuff like that as well. So these were all in sort of ponds and billabongs and stuff all, all around the place. Um, so they all had the same incision on their abdomen uh, and always had the hearts and the liver removed. So it does <gasps> sound like someone with, someone with some medical training is behind all of this.
2: <laughs> I love it that you say removed. Well. Well, I mean. At this point, they're just going, may have they're been, missing. Yeah, they're, they're missing. missing. There may have been nor marks. Yeah, like, well, like th- marks. this
1: is the other thing. So they found that the gallbladder had been moved inside the body or been pulled out of the body.
2: Oh, and the gallbladder, like you said, that's the part that. That's the toxic, most gives, toxic part. That creates the toxins. Yeah.
1: and often the legs had the toxic skin peeled off and some of the muscles eaten. (gasps) So they were eating the frog's legs and peeling off the skin, which is also toxic. So nobody's seen it. Nobody saw this happening. So they didn't really know what it was, but they had a possible clue teeth marks on the remains of the toads, especially on the leg bones.
2: Oh, teeth all the way through to the leg bone.
1: Well, they gnawed off the (laughs) muscles off the leg and left little scratchy teeth marks on the leg bones. And that narrowed them down to a prime suspect, which is – well, it's actually one of my favourite animals, really. Is okay. It's Australia's oh, –
2: Koala. No. No.
1: <laughs> Unless they're – well, maybe they're you know, rabid koalas or something. No.
2: Um, was it a – oh, you know, one of our desurids, one of our native carnivorous marsupials, like a no. like a quoll or something?
1: No, it wasn't wasn't a quoll, although they're pretty cool too. It was, in fact, Australia's answer to the otter, the native water rat, which I think is much better known as the Rikali. Oh, it
2: was a ricali.
1: Yeah. I love
2: the Rikali as well, Steve.
1: They are really cool.
2: They're very, very
1: cool. Um, So ricali are indigenous rodents but they're quite large. They grow to about a kilo in weight, a bit over a kilo, some of the biggest ones. Um, and they're among one of the few true mammals in Australia as well. So they're actually When you say plac- true
2: mammals, you placental mean placental mammals. mammals. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Don't um, be mammal racist here.
1: M- Mammalist. M- 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 <laughs> marsupialist. Yeah, yeah. I'm the, I'm, all right. I won't be marsupialist. <laughs> they are placental mammals. There you go. Um <laughs> And they're also one of the few predators or few native predators on the continent. We do have the other ones like your quolls and, you know.
2: Tassie devils. Tassie
1: devils and, and even numbats and things like that are known to have a chomp of various things. But Yeah,
2: actually, fun facts, Stu. Did you know this? The numbat is the closest living relative to the Tasmanian tiger.
1: So if we just selectively bred the numbat, we yeah. could... Bring back the Tassie yeah, tiger. Yeah, or if
2: you wanted to um, maybe, cl- yeah, yeah, bring back the Tasmanian tiger, you just Breed it back. Breed it back through the Numbat. Yeah, Jurassic yeah, Park yeah. style.
1: They actually kind of look similar too. They've got the yeah, stripy... The, the, yeah, the yeah. stripy mm. and the pointy nose.
2: Mm. Just a bit of a difference in size.
1: Yeah, well, you can always select for bigger animals though. That's the that's the great thing about breeding. Look <laughs> at the size of some of those dogs out there. Um The Ricali... Hunt all kinds of other creatures. They're not picky they, about what they. Eat. They love a bit of
2: crustacean. Yeah,
1: yabby. Apparently, yabbies is one of their main dietic choices.
2: Now, i've I've come to rikalis quite um quite late in life, but I'm really enamoured of them. They seem to have like the cunning and intelligence um of a, you know a rodent, and they seem to like make their burrows in the rivers. And they've got that wonderful little white bit on the back of their tail.
1: Yeah, yeah. They're they're cool looking animals. They're all over the place though. They live on the waterfront, like even in Victoria. They're in New South Wales, in Queensland. They're all through Australia pretty much. Um, Chances
2: are you've probably seen a Rakali.
1: And probably thought it was a rat. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people do think they're rats. But they, you know, they can swim. You see them swimming sometimes. They are very, very versatile little creatures. Um and and it makes sense they hunt things they hunt lizards, they hunt crustaceans, they hunt smaller mammals as well. Um Like like what? Or just you know, like smaller like smaller
2: m- mice or yeah, anticinus or yeah, something. Yeah,
1: like whatever you know, there's a lot of little tiny marsupials around the place as well. Yeah, of course. And and obviously other rodents, whatever they can catch pretty much <laughs> by the sound of things. They eat reptiles, they eat birds, they eat birds' eggs, they eat fish. And probably most importantly, they eat frogs. (laughs) So they do hunt frogs. And toads. Well, apparently so. (laughs) Um, So in in WA, the rest of the country, they are pretty well considered safe. They're not endangered or anything. In WA, they're still considered, considered a species of concern because the populations are much smaller than they've been historically because of the the general uh you know culprits in these cases is cats and foxes and domestic dogs and wild dogs and things like that.
2: That's really interesting. Con- considering Rikali and Victoria um live quite close to really urban areas where you would see a lot of invasive species, but in in WA you you've got the threatened population.
1: Yeah. Well, and it depends where you are, but they also were um hunted for their fur until
2: oh that's right relatively there was, recently there, there was a whole trade in rakali fur because yeah. it is i mean you know they're semi-aquatic semi land-based so they have the webbed feet webbed hind feet and, and they've got that really like the, waterproof fur don't they
1: waterproof really soft fur apparently oh, um so yeah there was a like trade so that's yeah. part of the reason that were you know that they were uh People were worried about them. But the threat of being poisoned by invading toads is, you know, still a bit of a worry. Of course. Um, Of course, the rikali are smarter than that. They are are fast learners, and they're smart enough to work out which toad bits to avoid eating. They just push them to the side of their plate (laughs) and eat around them.
2: Oh, gallbladder. (laughs) Gallbladder
1: Gallbladder's out.
2: It it is incredible. Like, are they using their sense of smell to do that? Like, how...
1: Well, the the researchers What's the behavior well the researchers think that they probably do this just with all the frogs that they eat and they only eat bits of them which is the most nutritious bit so it's probably partly instinctive but also partly learned behavior because um, uh, the Ricalli look after their young until they're large enough to hunt for themselves so they keep them around for you know a few weeks after they're born and teach them stuff so they've learned how to hunt frogs you know, in a certain way. And that actually translates into hunting cane toads, but they may be using their sense of smell or just watching each other and going, Hey, that guy got really sick when he ate the skin. So I'm going to avoid the skin or, you know, Is that, um,
2: know. Is that fairly common for rodent species to, to live with their, you know, live for a couple of weeks after.
1: Often not. They just sort of, once they get fur, they just run off. Yeah. Wow. But the Rakali sort of actually bond a little bit and have a little bit of Rikali school uh, <laughs> before they leave home um, so the other positive thing to come out of this was that the Rikali target larger toads, so they're targeting adult breeding individual toads right and
2: and that's is that quite unusual?
1: It is because um some animals can eat cane toads, but they eat them when they're babies, and they have got less toxin in them, so they less poison or well, less poisonous to the animals that eat them. So they eat the little tiny ones. Right. But the full-grown adults. Too
2: much poison. It's
1: too much poison for most animals. But yeah. the Carly have figured out, hey, just don't eat the poison bits and you can yeah. feast on the heart and liver. <laughs> um, <laughs>
2: yeah. I, I mean, I've heard of uh, certain birds eating cane toads. So the um, black kite and the whistling kite mm. eat cane toads. I've heard of certain snakes eating cane toads. Yeah. But I've never heard of a mammal eating a cane toad before. Well, there's
1: I mean, not, yeah, there's not that many carnivorous mammals around, but yeah, it, it is pretty unusual. You would think that, it, well, obviously the other ones I mean, can just. and ha-
2: living to tell the tale, I should Well, that's I it. I should say,
1: yeah. <clears throat> um, the other animals may be able to, you know, handle the toxin a bit better or something like that, but the Ricali's just avoiding it, which is pretty it's impressive. very clever. Um, so hopefully their newly adapted Behaviour can help stop the spread of the cane toad and stop them displacing other Indigenous species and also possibly help reduce the impact on other predators who aren't smart enough to figure it out. Um, You know, there'll be less of them around for them to accidentally eat. If these were targeting the breeding adults, then there'll be less cane toads in general as well.
2: So do you think these Rakali could, I guess, provide another layer of, I guess, defence Against the cane toads in that situation,
1: yeah, absolutely. And you know, it, it, anything that can slow down their spread is a good thing. And anything that targets the the adults is a better thing to do. And also, the the un- really the only ways they've been sort of trying to control them is controlling their the the tadpole stage of um, their life cycle, which also disrupts all of the other animals that live in the same places as them. So it's not really that great. But if you can get the adults, then that is. A big step in the right direction. So this research was actually published this month in the Australian Journal of uh, – the, the journal Australian Mammology. Um,
2: Hard word to say. Great journal to mammology, be Mammology,
1: yes. Um, in an article called Eat Your Heart Out, <laughs> and it's all about how Rick eat parts of the cane toads.
2: I think um, they've won the prize for the best-named journal article of 2019. So I'm at least going to um, give them uh, a recommendation for that prize. I'm going to put them up for that prize.
1: Is there, is there such a prize? Or are you just going to no. yeah, gonna have to set one up? Yeah, I'm going to have to set one up. Certainly the best title in Australian mammology this year. Certainly. Possibly. Um, but look, the hero of the story, the Rikali, they're pretty little-known animals, and I really think they ought to be more famous than they are.
0: And that is it for another episode of the Lost in Science Summer Series. Lost in Science is, of course, recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. We always love hearing from our listeners. So if you feel so inclined, please email us at lostinsci at gmail.com, or you can... Hook us up on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. We're also on Twitter. We are at Lost in Science 1. Uh, you can find us on a podcasting app. If you happen to find us somewhere that you're able to give us a good rating or review, then please do so as this will help raise us up in the search rankings so other people can share the science love. Uh, or alternatively, you can just listen to us on the radio. with at the same time every week. Claire, Stu and Chris get Lost in Science.